Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Sophie with our weekly podcast. Hope everyone had a great week and we learned everything we could learn last week. Today, we're talking about a really interesting and very timely topic. Not that they all aren't, but this one specifically is near and dear to me because I think that there's a small problem that's brewing with a lot of availability and easy access for teens, especially with alcohol and drugs and the role modeling that's going on and the reality shows that are going on and all of the kinds of things that are really playing into the fact that it's almost somewhat like cigarette smoking used to be 20, 30, 40 years ago, where it's almost glamorous to have a cigarette in your hand. It's almost glamorous now to, you know, uh, have a drink in your hand or be partying with your friends. And is it appropriate? And that's what I want to talk about today, teen substance abuse. And with me, I'll have a uh, really special guest, a really educated and versed person in this field and has a new book out, which is really um, something I was taking a look at online and is very good. And I also want to talk about really the impact of what parents are doing with substance abuse as well, because, again, we are the role models for our children. And I think somewhere along the line, besides all of the glamour stuff that I talked about, they're getting a message that it's kind of okay, maybe even cool to drink from parents and, and the adults in their life. So I want to talk a little bit about that. And I want to talk about the ways that parents can address some of these issues if they do have some concerns with their children, how they can be proactive. And no matter what, even if you feel you're being reactive, there is a way to deal with it because you have to deal with this with your child because sticking your head in the sand or ignoring it is really not going to help anybody, especially your child. So give me a call at one eight five five sophie now one eight five five seven six seven four nine six six. We're talking teen substance abuse. Dr. Sophie back here again. We're talking teen substance abuse today. We're, we're really going to learn a lot about things today, but I, I want to go over a few statistics that I think are pretty disturbing. The numbers have changed in substance abuse for teens over the last couple of years, but specifically over the last year or two. And according to a survey online that I had read and some research that I have done on my own, teens in high school admit to using drugs or alcohol constantly. But if you ask them, say, how many of you have used and what have you used in the last 30 days, you're going to have a majority of them saying almost 50% are using alcohol within the last 30 days that you're asking them. They About 25% have used marijuana, and the rest trickles down through tranquilizers, hallucinogens, steroids, inhalants, cocaine, whatever they can get their hands on. But the majority of the drug use, if you ask a teen what they've used in the last 30 days, it's about... 50% alcohol and about 20% marijuana, and that's pretty significant, and, and that's really kind of what's disturbing today and driving this discussion about teen substance abuse. I think also teen substance abuse specifically with marijuana has increased because the availability, especially here in California, to get a mar medical marijuana card, and they're not that difficult from what I understand from many of my patients, but also other people that uh, they're not that difficult to obtain. And then once you get it, you have at least six months of ability to access marijuana on multiple levels in multiple ways and strengths and different things. And, and I'm just not sure that that's regulated enough for a teen to use and be able to make those judgments. Because let's go back to the developmental timeline of their brain. They're teenagers, so their brains are not fully formed yet. And then you have the influences of hormonal uh, axes on those brains, so their judgment, their ability to make a decision, their ability to control their impulses and their moods are going to be all over the place to begin with. And then you add the fact that they then have access to drugs or alcohol, which are really adult types of things to be making decisions about. So 
to me, it's a perfect storm for a child or a teen, really, to have a problem. So we're talking teen substance abuse today, and my uh, guest expert today, her name is Catherine Sadler. She is a prevention, community prevention specialist who has worked as a teacher, school counselor, business exec, community advisor, uh, activist, and a grant evaluator. And if you look at all of the facets of those duties that she has done, a teacher, a school counselor, business side, community activist, and a grant evaluator, you see that she's in really many different areas of a really core place to be. She's gotten to see what the community thinks. She knows what the kids think as a school uh, teacher, as a school counselor. She hears some of the trials and tribulations and problems they're going through from the business side. She knows the numbers and how to maximize and access. And as a grant evaluator, she really knows how to write a grant and also how to evaluate a grant and knows what is needed to be studied and to be funded so that we can get outcomes and measures and information that's going to then inform the community. So from a well-rounded standpoint, she's been able to really take a look at the, the many facets that we need to be able to make good decisions and move communities in a way forward that we need to. And so she's been with the uh, Prevention Resource Center at Indiana University since 2007. She uh, serves as a technical consultant and evaluation specialist for state and federal substance abuse prevention and early intervention grants. She has a new book called What Adults Need to Know About Kids and Substance Abuse, Dealing with Alcohol, Tobacco, and Other Drugs, published in 2011. She'll tell us more about that. And she's going to answer a lot of our questions, and we're going to talk about teen substance abuse. Catherine, are you with me? I sure am. How are you? I'm fine. How are you, sir? Good. Thank you for joining me. So tell me what you, uh, what are your thoughts when I just say teen substance abuse in 2012? That it is a rampant and growing issue, and it's far beyond what we as adults have ever conceived could happen. And Why? Because it is so quickly and rapidly growing, and it's like the balloon effect. If you have a half-blown-up balloon and you push on one side to deflate it, the other side pops up larger. So if we can deflate, for instance, tobacco use, which is waning up and down as far as statistics go, then it will appear somewhere else. It's not a matter of necessarily what they're abusing. They're going to get their hands on anything from inhalants um, to common cough medicines to prescription drugs to the new synthetics that come out on a daily basis. It's the reasons behind the use that need to be addressed. And that's what that's what I was going to ask you. Is this like kind of the nature of the beast? Right. It, well... Young people need a coping skill, and uh, drug use is a coping skill, and it's a common one, and it's readily available anymore among uh, their peers. So if we're not teaching them coping mechanisms beyond how they are supposed to help themselves, they're going to uh, lean toward their peers rather than go to mom and dad, especially in those uh, high school teen years. Their uh, peers become much more priority in their lives. Right. So, I mean, if mom and dad haven't really instilled what they need to early on, they're not going to come home to mom and dad for their coping skills, is what you're saying. That's right. That's an early uh, explanation of what drugs and alcohol can do to your system, early um, recognition that it can be an issue to parents, teaching parents what they need to teach our kids, uh, and going back to relying on uh, parenting skills, because this is not the world that we grew up in. 
And and do you think then with a perfect storm, see, I see it as a perfect storm where you have parenting skills that are probably not where they need to be, be either because parents didn't get them themselves or they're too upside down from whatever's going on in their own life or their substance abusers themselves. So they don't lay that foundation. And then these teens then when they need them, don't have them and they run to their peers, which is their real family at that point. And their peers are oftentimes using these drugs and then they move on and it's just a perfect storm. Right. And when we were, well, when I was young, mm-hmm. um, alcohol uh, was, was probably the most prominent drug of choice, and LSD was used by uh, rock stars. Right, only. <laughs> <laughs> only. And that's not the way it is. Right, they, that's not uh, reality. And uh, the younger generation, my adult children, for instance, had different things to cope with, and in my generation, marijuana was not nearly as potent as it is these days. And access to things, I, uh, in the book, I, I talk that access to an, a party with alcohol when I was young was a, a note slipped through the hallways or a whisper. Right. But now it's on social media. It's on right, right. Uh, networking. It's in text. It's on phone, you know, uh, Many, many, many kids have cell phones, and there's there's no access to what's going on that way. So it becomes harder for the parent to keep up with what's going on with the students, with their children, too. Right, but at the end of the day, we still keep going back to the same core, which is parents need to be connected to their kids early on. That's it. I mean, would you say, though, that over time, the drugs of choice have transitioned from, like you said, alcohol or LSD to now the availability of lots of alcohol and marijuana most often, because I was reading a statistic earlier that said that uh, about 48% of teens, if you ask them what they've used in the last 30 days, 48% would say alcohol and about 20% would say marijuana. Right. And why is that marijuana so prevalent? It's not only that it's potent, it's really accessible. And here in California, you can get a medical marijuana card almost at, you know pretty easily at and that gives you access to like the pharmacy, which you walk into and is pretty, you know, it's 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 overwhelming to be honest. Right, it it is easy to access. It's a, a plant life. It can be grown. It does not have to be uh, created in a clandestine lab uh, like methamphetamine or some of the other synthetic drugs. Right. Uh, students don't know how to fertilize and grow a cash crop and. Uh, so accessibility is easy. In fact, in some areas of this country, it is easier to access marijuana than it is to access alcohol. Yeah, you know what? You're absolutely right. Because alcohol has laws around it that guide, um, for instance, having to be carded. They have police departments across the country that deal only with uh, alcohol or other drug right, right. Uh, arrests. And so it's much more regulated than our marijuana is. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, the bottom line is that, uh, yeah, I mean, it's you're absolutely right. It's, it's so much easier to go in and, and you could plant a few seeds and grow your own marijuana versus trying to get into a store and buy a bottle of uh, alcohol. And then there's the younger kids, our, young, our youngers. I mean, we're not talking about 16-year-olds. A lot of times these kids are starting to drink and smoke marijuana at 12 and 13 years old average. And you think that's the accessibility factor, too, or is that home conflict as well? And uh, Well, we've learned that home conflict is higher in that eighth grade level, but it might be that it's their perception of what conflict is. Right. Because 
they're 12 and 13 years old, they might see mom and dad argue about something as, and, and take it out of perspective as a 16-year-old would treat it differently. However, when they're 16, they also, a lot of times that drug use, that percentage-wise levels off some because kids have other access to other things to do, like jobs, driving. Not to say that I think a 12-year-old should be driving. Please, no. But um, yes. that they have access to other, other avenues, other distractions, other coping yeah. mechanisms as they've grown. But these 12- and 13-year-olds, they're not only just doing uh, predominantly, yes, it's alcohol and marijuana, but they have access to inhalants, and inhalants come in all shapes and sizes. It's not just airplane glue anymore. That's it, right. It's um, evolved into more sophisticated things. Right. And then there's uh, the, uh, the cough medications that they can get that can cause, if you take enough of it, an LSD out-of-body experience. Right. No, absolutely. Hold your thoughts there. I want to take a live caller so that we can answer her question, then we'll come back to this. Okay. Sandy, are you there? Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? You're on with myself and Catherine Sadler. Hi. Um, I have a 12-year-old that's going to start a new school um, this coming year, and she's going into there not knowing anyone. And the school, you know, like a lot of private schools, has a lot of drugs, and I'm concerned that she may want to sit in and decided that's how she's going to fit in and not, not really sure how to start that conversation and what I should do before, you know, she heads off that way. And do you, do you have any concern, like has she dabbled before? Have you caught anything or any of her friends that you're maybe at a No, but about? I do know some of the kids there who are involved and it's going to be a small group of kids and, you know, the concern of her needing to fit in in a group who did, you know, she doesn't know anyone. And From her peer pressure. Exactly. Okay. Um, what do you think, Kathy? Uh What does she like to do outside of, I assume there's some coursework that she appreciates more than others, but does she have any hobbies or activities that she uh, can be involved in? She's a pianist. All right. Pianist. Okay. Uh, the idea is that Kids that are more involved in outside activities are less likely to become involved with substances. That if you can get her involved in an activity at school where she meets people of like mind, she will uh, hopefully connect with them as friends. Sports is a great one because they do keep an eye on their athletes. And um, another one is if the if it has a music program, the school has a music program, get her involved as the so really the bottom line is get her connected to the things that are her strengths, her hobbies, and really flutter with those so that she's really integrated into the kids that have gone that route. That's right. Now, okay. does, do you have any other issues with her behavior or her interactions? Not so much, but um, her father and I aren't going through a divorce, and my concern is sometimes when she feels down or low that, you know, that could also be more enticing if she's in an environment where it is prevalent and on yeah. her friends. Or, yeah, or accessible, or she's exactly. looking to take the pain away. Right. Do you think that she, does she have any friends now that you're concerned about? Um, not close friends. And do you have any family histories on either side, her dad's or yours? I would say her dad more so. I mean, Catherine, what do you think about the genetics of substance abuse? Unfortunately, there is a definite genetic link between substance use and, um, and addiction. However... It's just you have, you have to be aware of that, that sometimes once the brain touches it or tastes it, it there's, there's uh, something within the brain chemistry that causes 
uh, an immediate connection that the brain then desires whatever addictive element. We'll say alcohol. The brain would then desire the alcohol more than in some other people. And it's just something you have to be aware of. It is not that she is blatantly going out and saying, I'm going to get loaded every night. The brain needs that fix. And there are a lot of ways to handle it. And that's with counseling and with um, just monitoring her and getting her into the good stuff. I'm serious. That's probably one of the best things you can do for her is involve her in positive reinforcement. I I agree. I agree. Where she really gets her kudos and all that strength and all that patting on the back from doing things that are good and, and with good groups of people and good adult supervision. And I think I have one other question. What's the, where is that cutoff point between trying to talk and be, have open communication about drugs and substance abuse and then becoming a neurotic mother who's yapping away and yeah, is going to make you crazy? That's a great question because I have other parents who ask me, like, I don't want to bring it up because I don't want to give her the idea to do it. Right. So what do you right, think, that, Catherine? That as well. Um, I, I, I can akin it to, um, for instance, I know that my daughter could be sexually active. Right. So I'm not going to bring it up with the hopes that I don't need to get her birth control. But that's denial. <laughs> no. If she's going to be sexually active, the last thing I want is to her, uh, an error in judgment of having sex before there's a commitment, become a baby. So I would take her to the doctor to get help, right. uh, to, get the, to get the birth control she needs. Uh, it's the same thing. There, it's never wrong to talk about it. And then, I, and have, then I, kept, I kept a, um, some kids need oh, some reason to say no. For instance, I kept a, uh, a drug testing kit in my house. Uh-huh. And I told hmm. the kids, I can take it down and use it, and I do know how to, and I will if I suspect. So my kids could go out and then say to their friends, oh, I can't do that. My mom will know, and my mom will test me. Right. So it, that's arming them with ways to say no. Oh, and that's, that's part of the thing. Just say no doesn't work. They have to be able, because somebody's going to come back with, well, why not? That's right. Well, and the kids that are using want their peers to use also because it keeps them then from feeling guilty about the use themselves. Right. And then where does a mom or a dad stop or, you know, where do they draw that line of not being annoying and turn their kid off but really let their kid know they're not playing games? Uh, I'll let you know when that happens. My oldest is 40. Ah. (laughs) So you haven't stopped. There is never a time to cut off and say, oh, well, I trust you. You can always have that open conversation. It doesn't have to be about around the things that, well, I think you are. But how about conversations about what's going on in the world? As so far there's as no drugs. oversaturation or over, you know. Emphasis. Being, no. Right. But, I mean, I think. No, I don't no. think so. Not in this no. world. No. And, I mean, I think, Sandy, the fact that, you know, if she gets irritated by you, that might mean you're onto something. So explore that a little bit with her. Right. And this Attitudes, you know, if you see a change in attitude, if you see a change in grade levels, if you see a change in dress, in friends, and things like that, those are all indications that at least there is something going on that she needs to address. Now, it may not be drug use. Most commonly it is, but it could be a lot of other things that are stemming into the way she's trying to cope with something. Exactly. Okay, great. Thank you so much for your help. I appreciate it. Thanks for calling in. Uh Thanks. Bye. Bye. So I, I'm sure, Catherine, 
you hear this stuff a lot, and the questions are pretty similar, more similar than different. But the bottom line is, you know, parents are afraid to talk to their children about this stuff for various reasons. One is they either haven't used or are not comfortable with the topic to begin with, but also either they don't want to give their child that idea to go use. But I, as you said, it's not arming your child with anything. And the more you talk and the more information they have, the more power and the more tools they have. Right, and it's also what, if they find out there is a problem, what do you do? Our doctors are even sometimes afraid of that, is that, you know, if you ask the right questions and you get the wrong answers, now what do you do with the information that you have? Absolutely. And, you know, there is a lot of things we can do before we have to seek treatment to try and help our, our kids out of this. And, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. for the, as simple as just changing one thing about their habits or their uh, behaviors can cause a snowball effect in their thinking and their uh, emotional set state. I encourage kids that are in, are in the early intervention stages to find a friend that doesn't use uh, an old friend from you know elementary school that doesn't use, and they don't have to be their best friend, but Start to talk to them. Start to become involved in their life. Some that could it, be, yeah, that could be their common bond where they don't use together. Right, and it also gives them an easy win. You want these kids to feel that they're being successful at trying to change what's going on. So if they're successful at making this friendship again, they're successful at making a change in their thinking style and their behavior, right. and it causes a snowball effect to other uh, other events changing also. Yeah, I mean, it could be the start of other stuff. You're exactly right. Tell me more about inhalants. We were, were talking about inhalants before we took that call. Right. What do you see most often? Oh, heavens. Because I don't think parents are aware of how many inhalants are at the tips of their fingers of their children, and they're utilizing them, and they wouldn't even think about it. Well, um, they, uh, I can go back in uh, 20, 30 years ago when uh, paint thinner was a common was a common uh, chemical. Right. Uh, you could see in some sections of the country where paint thinner was was made, you could see the fathers who had worked at the factory had become so, their brains had become so changed by that chemical they could no longer be without it, and they would soak rags, and you could watch them walk down the street carrying yeah. these rags soaked with, with um, what they call tule. Right, right, right. But they, they dubbed tootaloo. For just that, it made right. your brain go to the loop. Exactly. But uh, today, it's not just the uh, oh the uh, air canned air that they used for uh, cleaning computer uh, equipment because now the most popular brand name of that puts in a chemical that will make you sick, your stomach ill, rather than uh, having. Uh, and kill your brain cells or kill your breathing. What it does is the inhalant stops your breathing process. And they use inhalants com most commonly because it doesn't show up in a drug screen. Right, 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 right. So you're looking at an opportunity for somebody who is in a program to use some substance to, uh, to combat their need to be high. Common things, household cleaners. I've seen uh, them. I've seen aerosol air fresheners. Um, anything that comes almost in an aerosol can whipped cream. Oh, really? Yeah. The uh, 
chemical around the cam whipped cream can cause a child to get high. How about they that? lose their oxygen. How about that white out stuff for when you make a mistake when you're writing? I've heard people using yeah. that as well. That, that can be used, some forms of magic markers. It's more along the line, again, educating the parents that the stuff is out there. We protect our babies from it. Right. You know, I, I, have, I have small grandchildren. I put my chemicals up high. I put my, you know, my prescriptions up high and away from them. I, put my, I used to lock my alcohol up, but uh, that was to protect them the same as if they were toddlers. You right. protect the adults exactly. the, or our juveniles the same as you would protect the toddlers because They're gonna they don't use necessarily it. have the judgment for alcohol for logic and reason well, that's at that right. age. I mean, their, their brains are still developing, and on top right. of that, their judgment, insight, impulse control are evolving. you got hormones acting on that and peer pressure and self-esteem issues, and again, it's another perfect storm to reach to something to take the pain away. Right. All right, hold on. Let's do a voicemail from a uh, caller. Hi, Dr. Sophie. This is Kay. I have a wonderful son who's a senior in high school. Lately, he's been going to some parties, and I'm quite sure he's been having a couple of beers. He's a great kid. He does well in school. He's a lot on a lot of sports teams. There's never been a problem. He's never missed his curfew. He, uh, he's never had any problem with the police or anything. I just don't know exactly what I should do, whether I should try to stop it with him going to college next year. I know that I'm not even going to be around. I'd really appreciate your advice and, and help on this. Thank you. Interesting. I'm sure a lot of parents are in the same boat. What do you think? Yeah, they're going to experiment. Yeah, and they should. Don't you think they should? That's the nature of the beast. Well, again. that is the nature of the beast. I'm not going to say that they should. I wish they wouldn't. Well, me too. But, uh, you know. <laughs> they are going to. A lot of kids are the ones that are going to say, oh, well, let's try this. And once they've tried it, they say, oh, well, that was fun. Let's go skydiving. Let's go do right, something exactly, else. Exactly. That is... That is what teens do. I'm not saying talk to him. Exactly. Communication. To talk, to keep the lines of communication open. Um, remind him that there are better things in life than uh, trying, the, trying substances. There are a whole lot of other things going on. If she doesn't, you know, I'm, I, I believe that children need their own life, but I also believe if there's enough suspicion that you need to check out what's going on with them. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that we need to be having an open dialogue from the beginning, letting them know that, you know, you were that age, people are, you know, it's all part of life, talk about it. And I think the earlier the foundation is set, even from birth on, that's a, if you put a solid foundation in place, those discussions are much easier to be had and then they fall a lot easier on that child or that teen. And the interaction is a lot better because trust has been built, a respect level has been built, and your kid has learned, your child has learned how to, self, how to respect themselves and how to modulate things. Mm -hmm. And they're not looking for medications or Band-Aids to take away their pain emotionally, that they're able to talk and work through things. Right. So, I mean, the bottom line is it's solid parenting. Right. All right, let's do another one. Hi, Dr. Sophie. I'm calling about my daughter. This is her first year away at college, out of state, and um, lately I've noticed on her Facebook page that everything has been about drinking and being drunk and being hungover and pictures of being at a party and so on and so forth, and I was really, I'm really starting to get concerned, and I wanted to know um, what the best way would be to approach this with her, because obviously she's not talking 
for telling us about it. We're just seeing this on our Facebook page. And secondly, I wondered um, how this may affect her, you know, later on as she graduates and is looking for a job. All this has been on her Facebook page, and I know employers are getting a little more savvy at profiling their potential employees and looking at Facebook and different social networking sites. So I wanted to maybe bring that up with her as well, but wanted to get your thoughts on that first. So anything that you may have, any advice or tips or ways to approach and handle this would be great. Thank you so much. That's great. You know, I think there are two of the key issues that we talked about. One is the glamorization of it, and one is the uh, access, as you said, the social media, texting, all that kind of stuff. And it's another way to even glamorize it even further. I mean, you know, I think, what do you think? She knows her mom and dad are getting on Facebook. She wants them to know what's going on. Right. So you think that's a way for her to, like, out herself. She's, she's, and if mom and dad aren't doing anything about it, mom, or, mom and dad are saying in her eyes, it's okay. So that's important to note that, you know, parents out there listening to this, if you are not on your child's Facebook page, or even if you are, and you're seeing things that, you know, concern you or your child is doing things that they shouldn't be doing, ignoring it is giving them permission, correct? That's it. That's it. And this is where parenting becomes really tough. Yeah, and this scary. Where you have to put your foot down. Okay. I'll say this. Um, as I said, I have kids up into their 40s, but I have a daughter I brought home from school for the same reason. Uh, she is a successful, uh, well-educated woman now with two great kids, and, you know, and she has come out of this, but let's not think about what's going to happen right now. Let's look about what will be if you don't take action in 10 years. That's so important to say. And Absolutely. It's not a matter of, oh, let's not upset the apple cart now. The apple cart will be really rotten. By the 10 time, years right. If you don't. Exactly. All right, let's do another one. Dr. Sophie, my name is Jonathan, and um, my son has a uh, friend with a marijuana card. And I think uh, that's a problem because my kid gets his, uh, gets some uh, marijuana too from him, and I just think that that's a problem. I wanted to know what you thought because, you know, it's just allowing my son a way to have some drugs, and it's not okay, and I didn't understand how to really deal with that. Thanks. What do you think, Catherine? Oh, wow. Um, having very little experience with medical marijuana or, I mean, I'm in the Midwest where marijuana is grown between the corn stalks, uh -huh. but uh, we don't deal with that very often. If the child needs the card, there are alternatives to marijuana, too, that are less addictive. Yeah, I uh, think If so. the child needs... I mean, Dad needs to become more involved with what's going on, it seems like. Yeah, I think he's probably, it sounds like he's, not really that he's high, but he sounds like he's not comfortable addressing this with his child. But, I mean, like you said, you don't do it now, doing later is going to be even worse. Yeah. But the accessibility out here in California is really an issue because, you know, you have to be, I think, 18 to be able to get a card, maybe older. And you have to be 21 to drink, but you can be 18 to get a medical marijuana card? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm not sure the exact oh. age, but I think it's that that low. And there are many high school, early college kids on this stuff. Right. And, you know, they're using their young brains with a lots of uh, developmental issues, hormones, to make these decisions of, you know, what marijuana to buy or get in a pharmacy. Wow. So it's kind of scary. And I think it's that's probably what this guy's trying to get at. But I think the bottom line, like you said, is... No matter what it is, you got to talk to your child. You got to be able to stand there and, and do the tough stuff because it's either now or even later will be tougher. Right, 
Well, right. it goes on to other things. Marijuana and alcohol get old, especially if they're starting young. That experimentation mentality is still there, and they're done with the alcohol, and they're done yeah. with the marijuana, and next is the prescription drugs right. or they're, the synthetics or whatever else they can get their right. hands on. I mean, you know, they're all gateway drugs the earlier you start, and if you don't shut that stuff down, then they definitely are a gateway to bigger things. Right. I did a... Uh, a thing for CNN yesterday on uh, bath salts. And I mean, that's just another example of how desperate and how, you know, part of the the nature of the beast of a teen playing around and they'll do whatever they can do and they'll snort and they'll whatever. But mm-hmm. the bottom line is you still go back to the fact that your child is doing that for a reason. Right. And if it's not true genetics and only genetics, which I doubt it is 100% of the time just genetics, there's something inside that they're reacting to, whether it's peer pressure or whatever, and you got to really talk to your child, know your child, and, and really have open dialogue. All right. All right. I think we have one more. Hey, Dr. Sophie, this is Don, uh, and I'd like to get your opinion on treatment options for teenagers with substance abuse issues, and I'd, I'd like your thoughts on the traditional rehab facility as an option for them, inpatient versus outpatient, and if, if there's something specific that works better for teens that um, doesn't work for adults or something more geared for adults that doesn't work for teens, there seems to be a lot of options out there for, for troubled teens, and I'm curious to get your thoughts as to what might be um, the better approach for these kids. Thank you. You know, Catherine, I think obviously there's a definition for substance use versus abuse and addiction, but what in your experience have you seen anything specific to teens or, or versus an inpatient versus outpatient? No, um, it depends on the teen, but my biggest advice would be the family needs treatment too because family is going to be who deals with this child after they are taken out of rehab and they go back to the same situation and they go back to their same peers and they go back to their same uh, patterns because while we can take them out of it for a while, we can't take them out of it forever. Right. And so when they go back to the teen, they, uh, their, their friends, they need coping skills. And mom and dad are going to have to be the primary people that give them those skills. And so mom and dad have to learn too. Yeah, I think it's so important because many times I've had patients that I've put into rehab and, and you've taken a teen out of their environment and you don't really do a whole lot about what they're going to be reentering into. Right. And it's a family disease as much as it's an individual disease, especially in the teen years. Well, you, you know, parents can't say, here, fix him or fix her. Well, that's unfortunately what I think many parents think. And it doesn't work that way because it's, uh, we see this in a lot of different kinds of situations, but especially with kids, they go back to the same school, they have the same friends, they have the same people pointing fingers, they have the same stressors. And, you know, our counselors and our teachers can be taught that these are the things, you know, help this child with coping skills, watch this child for certain patterns. Right. But uh, mom and dad need to be re-taught on how to be sure this child doesn't end up going back through the same process again and again and again. Tell me something. When you're writing grants and you're looking at the federal and state government sides of this, do they look at that whole kind of treatment model the same way that it's not just the teen, it's the family? And yes. Do they put those kinds of things into their funding so that everyone gets treated and the community heals better? More and more. It has become a great thing that the federal and state government have begun to, uh, to use family 
strengthening process, family skill building process, family management skills, and then within a community, looking at a community's uh, what a community feels is normal, what a community is accepting, and what it shouldn't accept to change an entire environment, not just the student. And, and tell me more about, like, how would you assess whether or what a community needs or what they would accept as their environment? We take a lot of uh, value in uh, just demographics of a certain society, you know, culture, lifestyles. Um, even down to what the economic status is, because a lot of times if you're looking at a situation where it's a low economic status, mom and dad may be working one or two jobs just to make ends meet, leaving the kids home by themselves, or an elder child taking care of a bunch of younger ones. And it's just, those are not ideal situations for a, a child to be able to develop. And so how does that play into the decision making from the government side of this? and the design of a program? Uh, it plays into it in a lot on different levels. For instance, while some of these grants are not so huge that we're going to be able to change the economic status of a community, we can take smaller bites of what is causing some of the issues and try and address them. For instance, physical design of a neighborhood or changing a policy that makes it more difficult for a student to, I don't know, student drug testing or uh. a student to uh, get a hold of, of alcohol or get a hold of marijuana or teaching a community how to better patrol for alcohol-related parties and things like That's that. That's really interesting. And so it would even translate down to something where maybe the funding is allocated for the community to have programs, groups, support, whatever, during times when both parents might be working and kids would be typically on their own or watching their siblings, bringing them together at those critical times. Right. After school is a very critical period of time for, uh, for our 12- and 13-year-olds in particular because nobody's home. Right. So you look at that through the demographics. Right. The other question I have is then how does that impact school education of substance abuse for teens and you know even in lower schools where they're starting as you said at 10 to 12 years of age are we funding programs in schools to be able to have this stuff taught to these children and even to the parents it'd be wonderful if it were on a federal level that is one of the things i think our communities cry out for the most is have curriculum guidelines k through 12 teach it like it were math go back to the basics at the beginning of every year, remind them, teach them coping skills. There's wonderful programs out there, but it is not heavily uh, introduced as part of a normal curriculum. It could be introduced as part of a science when you do biology. English as in uh, writing and uh, various, various authors math. It could be introduced in so many different curriculum studies that it would just become part of their daily experience rather yeah, than having absolutely. drug and alcohol class. It's so, it's so interesting that you say that. I mean, you can integrate the concepts of, you know, the influences of drugs on a brain through a science class and, and chemistry and make it engaging for these kids so they understand the real impacts that these insults to their brain tissue are all about and how they're affecting their behavior. Right. And when you're talking to kids, you can't say, okay, eventually this is going to happen to you. They don't want to hear that. They want to know how, okay, if I 
I'm not going to drink and drive, for instance. The, these children are not known for drinking and driving. They know better. Right. But they are drinking. Okay, what does drinking do to your body? How will it affect the, your facial structure? How right. will it affect your skin? Right. Uh, now. Right. Because their egos are at play at that Right, point. absolutely. Their self-esteem is very they, fragile. Yeah, we talk about amphetamines and meth and a few other. The amphetamines will cause gum disease. So your teeth fall out right. and will cause uh, skin irritation to where you're scratching and you get these awful red pock marks and you lose weight and you become scrawny looking, for instance. There's a Midwest word. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> it's important that they see how it would affect them now. Right, and I think They're it's, not thinking about it. And them. I think that's a great idea to integrate them into their everyday studies, but in a way that's much more understanding, engaging, and they learn it, and it really does inform them with the best tool ever, which is education right. and knowledge. Great stuff today. Thank you very much. Catherine, how do we find you? And tell us a little bit about your book. My book is What Adults Need to Know About Kids and Substance Use. It was published last year and through Search Institute, and it made Library Journal's top 24 wow. uh, bestsellers this last February or Congra March. Congratulations. And uh, thank you. Uh, it is very a very easy read. It draws in some stories of uh, events, and then it draws in also what happens to the body when it has... Uh, when uh, it takes in some of these chemicals, and it also talks about what to do. Great. If it's a student, if it's a friend of a student, if it's a parent, whoever you are addressing, to help this child change one thing in their life to hopefully either get them to build on the change or get the snowball effect started to make a cognitive thinking change in their lifestyle. That's really great, and it's an easy read. It is an easy read. I don't think it's out of anybody's realm to be able to get through it fairly easily. Very good. Thank you. And any other social ways we can reach you, websites, Facebook, uh, Twitter? I can be reached through our um, Indiana Prevention Resource website, which is uh, www.drugs.indiana.edu. One more time. www.drugs.indiana.edu. Got it. Indiana University. And... Uh, I'll be glad to uh, talk to anybody, and I am a Facebook person myself. Uh-oh. And so uh, you can reach me through that also. There's no pictures of you partying on there, I hope. I got pictures of my grandbabies. Good that's job. Why I, that's why I Facebooked in the first place, Good is job. that I wanted to see my grandchildren. Not to party. <laughs> Not to party, no. No, no. Good it's job. It's pretty calm and quiet. And scrawny. And, well, no, we're, we're not. none of us are scrawny. We're Midwesterners. We're the... Meat and potatoes. Corn, meat, potatoes, and corn kind of fed people. Good job. Thank you very <laughs> much for your time and thank your expertise. You. And, and I really, we appreciate all your hard work. Oh, thank you. I appreciate being here. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Very interesting. We had uh, Catherine Sadler on. She was my guest expert today. She is a community activist, a grant evaluator. She's a business exec, school counselor, teacher has really looked at substance abuse from various aspects and has written a book called What Adults Need to Know About Kids and Substance Abuse. Published last year, easy read, she tells me. We can get it online. We could probably get it on uh, Amazon.com. I think we should all get that book because we do need to know what to tell our kids, what to look out for, and what kinds of things and what's happening with substance abuse these days and our teenagers. So 
What we talked about today and wrapping it up a little bit, coping skills for teens, that's what they need. And when they don't have them from early on, and I'm talking 2 and 3 and 5 and 12, then they are going to go out and look for things to self-medicate and soothe themselves. So teaching your child early on self-soothing techniques and coping skills is the key to really try to limit their access and need for outside intervention to feel better. Also, really checking the access to drugs and alcohol through any social medias and any ways that your children reach out to others, whether it's texting, Facebook, Twitter, all of those kinds of things are ways that your children can get access to alcohol, drugs, parties, all that kind of stuff. So really check those things out if you have a teen that's on there. And also family treatment. I mean, looking at your family as a whole and being able to see, are we functioning the way that we want to function? Do we need some support? Are we working two jobs and nobody's home with these kids at the end of the day and there is that kind of open time where they can do what they want and we're not really sure what they're doing and we don't want to ask because you got to ask. The denial is where you're going to get yourself in trouble. So again, knowledge is power and I really just ask you to please look at your children, know your child, know their coping skills. If you don't have coping skills or you don't know what they are, Ask your doctor, go to a mental health specialist. There are a ton of ways to learn. Get online, learn about uh, self-soothing and coping skills, all of the things that we need to be able to empower our children with so that they do not use substances as a means to medicate and self-soothe their pain away emotionally. And again, we also talked a little bit about the genetic aspect of substance abuse in teens as well as adults. Catherine was talking about how prevalent it is and that there is a connection between the genetics of substance abuse within your family and how that would translate into your child. And oftentimes, if your child has gotten those genetics or DNA, once that brain gets a taste of that drug, they're off and running. So sometimes you got to really think about those things, look back in your family histories. Is there an uncle? Is there an aunt? Is there a grandparent, a mother or a father who was a substance abuser or uh, alcoholic or whatever it may have been called? Years ago, it may not be a substance abuser. It might have just been a plain old Uncle John as an alcoholic guy. But you got to look at that stuff because that stuff is genetic. And once it's genetic and you turn your brain on or a teen inadvertently has that drink and starts to cope that way, they've gotten their brain and that, that machine is now running and the motor is going. So you got to really be aware of genetics. So again, today, teen substance abuse, great show, lots of great calls and voicemails, a really very versed and educated specialist and expert. Catherine Sadler talked also a lot about how the federal government and state governments are looking at ways to evaluate communities and be able to put programs and grants into place and fund different allocations of programs to be able to support communities at the times that they need it and really kind of looking at the demographics of each community and the needs dictated by those demographics. So if you have two parents working in a neighborhood because there's not a whole lot of support there financially and parents are out working, kids are alone, maybe more after-school programs in those areas or maybe more support in the schools. She also talked about ways that curriculums in schools could be uh, turned around a little bit where we could integrate some of the science of, of drugs and alcohol into a more palatable, interesting way to educate our kids. So she had a lot of great things to say. I'm glad she was here. We're going to have to reach back to her. Again, you can get any of these podcasts on my website at www.drsophie.com. One more time, www.drsophie.com. 
Call my number, my voicemail at any time at one eight five five Sophie Now or one eight five five seven six seven four nine six six. Any time of the day, questions, answers, problems, issues, things you want to talk more about. I'm always there. I'm always checking it, and I'm always listening to what you have to say. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook as well. Visit iTunes to download the full version of Andy Grammer's "Keep Your Head Up" and. Most importantly, don't forget to sweep. But you gotta keep your head up, oh, and you can let your head down.